Made New to Live New. We're in a series on Ephesians. Uh, we started last week a mini-series within the series. Get the big truth first. The first 14 verses of Ephesians set the stage, the cosmic stage, the big truth into which all of our lives fit, all of our truths fit, all of our hopes, dreams, and future fit. And as we go through this series, we're hitting the big three factors that make up that big truth. The Father has chosen us in Jesus the King. The Father has delivered us from bondage through Jesus the King. The Father has secured us for the promised land by the Spirit of Jesus the King. This is the big truth of our lives. This is the big truth of the universe. This is what the thing in which all other things hold together. And I promise that we would drill down deep into each one of those three things. And so we're starting today with the Father has chosen us in Jesus the King. For those of you who've been in church for a long time, you may know of the doctrine of election or predestination. That is the thorny subject with which we will be concerned today. Let's stand and read what Paul has to say to the church in Ephesus. Just as he chose us in him, in Jesus, just as God chose us in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before the Father in a love that unifies us having predestined us to be adopted as his children, his sons, his daughters, by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. You may be seated. You can't get out of these verses without a strong sense of language that involves chosenness, destiny, the future, and even the past, creation, the foundation of the world. There's a sense in this text that Paul is placing the Ephesians in the mind of God at the beginning of all things, before the beginning of all things. It's a tremendous truth but it also raises a lot of questions. It tells us a lot about God's plan, and because it does, it implicates some things about God's nature, who he is in himself, and what kind of God God is, that he is the sort of God who, before the creation of the world, thinks about these little people in Ephesus and these little people at Coast Bible Church. And we might wonder, uh, when we start to dig down deep into the doctrine of election, why this matters all that much. Why is it so important that we have to get into the mind of God before the creation of the world? Isn't that, aren't these things too wonderful for us? Aren't they too, too, too high and too glorious? Which I'm going to say yes, in some ways they are. But, but why? Why are we going there? Well, it matters. It matters who God is and what God is like. It matters if we're going to confess that God loves us, that God has chosen us, that God cares about us, he favors us, that he's given us salvation. It matters that these things aren't random. It matters that God is not the kind of God who goes about willy-nilly doing what the old gods in the ancient worlds and 
if we make ourselves gods in this present age, what we as gods do, where we just flit about by our emotions or our feelings. It matters that God has a plan, that God's the kind of God who does that sort of thing. And we can reflect. I mean, it comes from Paul's text. Uh, this isn't, it's not as though uh, when John Calvin was inventing the doctrine of predestination, he was just thinking really hard. He was thinking really hard, but he was also interacting with some places in Scripture. And I, I just noted a few up there. Uh, Romans 9, uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 2 Thessalonians 2. John Calvin really thinks that this comes from Scripture. It, it matters to him that he's being faithful to the text. And so we, if we're going to be faithful to the text, if we're going to say that the Scriptures are our authority and that they're true, then we have to attend to all of them. We can't just pick and choose what we like, as much as the culture wishes that it could. And for John Calvin and Martin Luther, um, Luther was sometimes a predestinationist. We'll talk about that. Uh, for them, they, they, you have to re- remember where they were in history. Um, for, for Luther and, and Calvin, they were at a time in history when the Roman Catholic Church, uh, when our friends in the Roman Catholic Church had gone overboard and they had muddled the doctrine of salvation. They live in a time when literally priests would walk around and they would literally ask you for money so that you could get out of purgatory, so you could earn your way or buy your way out of purgatory. That was something that the the Catholic priests did at the time. They don't do that anymore. The Catholic Church has reformed in that way. But at the time, that was serious. And at the time, um, some of the ways that uh, Thomas Aquinas' philosophy or theology of salvation had been interpreted is it was interpreted to suggest that our salvation depended on us. That if you wanted to get into heaven, it mattered a lot about what you did. And so for John Calvin and Martin Luther, there was a tremendous pressure, a tremendous theological and philosophical pressure to get salvation right. Because for them, they were worried that a lot of their friends, a lot of the people that they knew in the world, were being led down a wrong path. They were literally being taught into hell. That's exactly how Calvin and Luther approached the doctrine of salvation. And because they reflected on that, and because they were so focused on that, When they exegeted portions of Scripture, they came up, they found their way into a doctrine of election or predestination. And we'll see a little bit about how that worked. And so I just want, just at the outset, I want to give us a sense, a a historical broad sense of the three different ways that the doctrine of predestination or election has been articulated. And if you haven't guessed yet and you don't know, predestination or election deals with the idea That God in eternity, or before the creation of the world, is picking and choosing the people who will be saved. Okay? That is the the basic core of the doctrine of predestination or election. There are more than just three views, although I think that if you work hard enough, you can fit all the views under these three umbrellas. So let's go through them uh, together. The doctrine of election three views. The first view, that's in your note sheets, is double predestination. Not just one predestination, friends, but two. Uh, And this is a a troubling doctrine for many in this culture. Because as you see in your note sheet, double predestination is the belief that God has chosen every individual person who has lived, is living, or will live, either to be saved in Christ or to be damned eternally to hell. You can only imagine how difficult this is for people in our culture. To, I, to believe that at the, out of eternity, God, seeing into the future, who will live, literally chooses, you are going to be created to go to hell. John Calvin believed this. He taught this. Occasionally, Luther 
believe this, um, although his views evolve um, through, through his life. But uh, before we um, just get upset at Calvin for coming, coming up with something like this, uh, let's, let's just recognize that, that John Calvin is very um, attending very carefully to a passage in Romans 9 that suggests, what he, Paul kind of asks a rhetorical question, what if some, you know, he calls them pots or vessels, what if some were created for, for, for good things and honor and, and others were created for dishonor? What, what, if, what if that's the case? What if it's the case that God really did? go and choose, in, in Paul's mind, some of the Jews um, for to be dishonored because they didn't believe in Jesus, and, and some of these Gentiles uh, to, to believe in Jesus and to be honored for it. What if God chose to do that? Paul kind of asks it as a rhetorical question. I'm not sure he fully embraces it, but that's kind of his attitude. I, I just want to, just briefly, have an aside here. What if that's the case? I'm going to suggest to you I don't think that that's really the case, um, but, but what if it is? That's a pretty harsh truth, okay? That, that's a pretty tough idea. And, and as Christians, um, people outside the church will look at us and be like, you bigots, how could you say that God's like that? Friends, I want to say this. If you come to a place in your life where you cannot read Romans 9, 21 to 23 without believing that God has eternally double predestined all of humanity, some to heaven, some to hell, and you're convinced of that in your heart and your soul, Okay, what I don't want you to do, and what our culture does, is say, oh, well, that truth in Scripture, that's just too, uh, it's too hard for me to deal with. I don't like it, it makes me feel bad. I'm outraged, in fact, because this truth is something I don't like. And so I'm going to toss it aside. Nope, I'm not going to deal with that. Uh, you have these opinions about this thing, that thing, that's great, but it's not, it's, not, it's not okay. It's not okay because it makes me feel bad. If that is the way that we approach the truth of God's word or the truth in general, we are out of line. You know, the interesting thing about the way Paul talks in Romans and talks here and talks everywhere is sometimes God does things that we don't understand. Sometimes God does, does things we don't necessarily like. And what Paul's response to that is and what the scripture's response to that is all throughout is shut up, deal with it. Guess who you are not? You are not God. God is God. And sometimes God does things you don't understand. It is not your place to tell God who he is. It is your place to come to humility and to worship. I am not going to suggest today that double predestination is true. I think John Calvin was wrong. But if I came to a place where I thought that maybe he was right, I I would be out of line to reject it because it made me feel bad. And I suggest the same thing for you. And while we're on it, John Calvin himself, who taught this doctrine, if you read in the Institutes where he talks about it, he trembles. People who make John Calvin out to be this monster haven't read him. People who make double predestinationists out to be monsters don't know them. They too tremble at the awe and the majesty of God. They too quake in fear that God could be like this. And they too understand that somehow through it all, God is truly gracious. And we should be able to unite with them in that. That said, I don't like double predestination. It makes me feel bad. Uh... The, the, next, uh, the next view on, on predestination or election is single, single predestination. 
Makes me feel much better. <laughs> a single predestination. It's very similar to double, except that that thing about choosing people to damnation is not a part of it. So in your note sheet, single predestination is the view that God has only chosen, or chosen only, that some individuals will be saved. God's looking at the from, from eternity, and he's looking at the future, and he's thinking about how everything is going to work out, and he picks some people. And he says, I'm going to send my spirit to save you. You are the ones I'm going to find and save. But God, at the same time, refrains from saying anything at all about what's going to happen to everybody else. And so God doesn't command or will uh, their eternity in hell, but he doesn't will or anything about them at all. Uh, From a practical perspective, this isn't a whole lot better, especially if we believe that the only hope for salvation for the human heart is that the Spirit come to you and find you and renew you, draw you to faith. If you believe that, well, single predestination means that even though God hasn't specifically chosen these people for an eternity of difficulty, he has nevertheless refrained from specifically choosing their hope. And so it's still not uh, something I love, but I will say this. I think that um, from a from a scriptural standpoint, this one's a little more, um, little more uh, I would say, backed up. And the reason I say that is because if you look through the scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, all the way through, with the exceptions of, exception of Romans 9, there is no place where the language of chosenness or destiny or election, there is no place where that is spoken of in any other way than as something positive that has come to the people that are being spoken to, the Christians or the Jews when they're uh, the nation of Israel. Election is always something that God has graciously done for this group. Election is never spoken of, with the possible exception of Roman 9, we can fight about that later. It's never spoken of as something that God does to hurt or to harm a people. When God chooses in Scripture, God always chooses for glory and for salvation and for redemption. And that's why I feel like single predestination is a little stronger in terms of the Bible. Uh, The third type of predestination is called Arminianism. To be distinguished from Armenians, which are a people, Arminianism is named after uh, Jacob Arminius, who was a dude, um, and he believed very strongly in free will. And so you look in your note sheet. Arminianism is the belief that God has chosen, and listen to this, that there will be a people he calls his own in Christ. At the same time, every person who has lived, is living, and will live may freely choose to respond to this invitation. Arminius's view is that God doesn't actually pick out people. From eternity, God looks and says, there's going to be a church. And that church is going to be filled up with people who respond to the Spirit. God's looking through and he doesn't see individual faces, but he sees that there will be a church, or for that matter, there will be Israel. And he looks into the future, there will be my chosen people. And then as, uh, as history plays out, God sends his Spirit to make this happen. Right? And because we're free people, we have a choice on Arminius' view uh, to decide whether or not we will respond. This is an attractive view in one way because it retains our sense that we're free and we can choose stuff, which we like because we're Americans. Um, But it also hurts in a way because we like to think that God has a special plan for me right? From eternity. We want to believe that God has, has figured out exactly what he's going to do for Tom 
you know? Uh, but, but if he's only really chosen a church and not necessarily people within the church, individuals, then it's harder to say that he has a special plan for my life or a special way that I'm going to live. We lose a little bit of that sense that God has this special destiny. So, which of these is correct? Well, I don't know. Let's look, at, let's look at the text again. Let's look at the text again and see which one sounds right. See which one sounds right. Ephesians 1, 4-6, Just as he, God, chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glory of his grace, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. Do you see it? Do you see which one's right? Right, me neither. Uh, let's, uh, let's move on. See, let, me, let, me, let me suggest this. Let me suggest that one of the problems is that when Martin Luther and when John Calvin and when others, Arminius, were looking at the scriptures, they were so jealous for the idea of salvation from hell and they were so focused on it that they may have missed a little bit of the tenor of what Paul is doing in this passage. And so let's, set, let's, let's look in the text a little bit deeper and see if we can't pull out maybe some, uh, some guideposts, some, some, uh, some signs that'll, that'll show us a better sense of what Paul's doctrine of election really is. Um, the first thing we need to do is we need to set his election text in context. Um, what, what we don't see here in the English, uh, but, but what, which is true, is that this whole section, verses 3 to 14, is one long, epic sentence in Greek. Uh, it's so epic, in fact, that scholars say, um, one scholar, uh, this guy named uh, Norden, he's German, he, he called this sentence the, quote, most monstrous sentence con- conglomeration I have ever encountered in Greek. Now, if you guys are familiar with Greek literature, it lasts from about, you know, 500, 600 BC all the way to maybe 300 AD, okay? That's a lo- thousand years of literature, and you will never find a more tortured, long, epic sentence in all of the language than this text right here in Ephesians 1. Why is that? I call it monstrous, um, following, with, following Norden. And there's a reason for that. If you're hearing it in Greek, um, what Paul's doing is that he, he's creating a feeling a rhythm to the language. Uh, you're hearing echoes of words over and over. You're hearing little bits of rhyme, almost like a T.S. Eliot poem. You're, you're, you're being caught up in a, in a conglomeration of language that sets you, that sets a feeling, a tone, a sense. For me, uh, I only know this through the work of William Faulkner. He's one of my favorite American authors. And it, what's so crazy about Faulkner is that he'll, he'll write these sentences, and the sentences are the worst run-ons in the world. They go on and on and on and on and on. But if you know that what Faulkner's trying to do is tell you what it's like to sit at the foot of an old plantation owner in the post-war South and listen to him ramble on about the decimation of his people, the decimation of the American South, the changes, the cultural changes, the terror, the horror in his heart as he's been broken and the way he's speaking just goes and goes and goes. He can't make sense of the world except to talk. And Faulkner carry, captures that emotion in his language. 
what feeling does Paul create? The thing we need to remember first is that this is a prayer. Ephesians 1.3 begins, Blessed is God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that follows is an act of worship by Paul before God to the Ephesians. It's difficult to describe what this prayer is meant to evoke. And so, I thought instead I would show you. How did you do this? I'll show you. Paul wakes up one day and all the promises of God have been fulfilled. A wall of separation that has existed for all time between uh, Gentiles and Jews, gone. The Gentiles are flocking to the movement of the Messiah and they're worshiping Yahweh God for the first time in all of history. Sins are wiped out. And how? And how? By God on a cross. Am I dreaming? This plan that God has had from the beginning, from the creation of the world, is more amazing than I ever could have possibly imagined. God, how did you do this? I'll show you. I came to you. I was with you. I died for you. I broke everything down for you. I freed you. I liberated you. And there is nothing that stands between you and me. And you never thought I could do it like this, but I did. I'll show you. This scene, it's, uh, it's funny. You know how to feel in this scene, not because you see the dinosaurs, although that's pretty awesome. In 1993, I remember um, we, uh, I waited with Craig Rutherford in front of the big Newport movie theater for like six hours while Arch and my parents went to Planet Hollywood to eat dinner. Um, and, uh, and boy, we were excited, I tell you what. And we kept shaking this can of Diet Coke because we thought, well, if we just shake it for like six hours, then it'll blow up and that'll be awesome. And we shook it and shook it and shook it. And when they finally got back, I put it right in Arch's face and went like this. And nothing happened because I had made it flat by shaking it too much. And yet, when I got into that theater, when I got into that theater, I knew exactly how to feel when they saw those dinos. Why? Because Dr. Grant, his face tells you. And Dr. Sattler's face tells you. And Ian Malcolm, the mathematician's face tells you. Even me, Ian Malcolm, the skeptic, the, 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 the physicist, even he looks at it and he can't help but laugh. John, you did it. How is this possible? How is this possible? This technique that Spielberg uses, it's even called something. It's called the Spielberg look. You tell audiences how to feel by showing it in the actor's face as they, as they react to something amazing that they cannot believe. This text, Ephesians 1, 4 to 6, 4 to 13, is Paul's Spielberg look. This is what God has done for us. And it feels like we're walking in a dream. Did you notice how John Hammond responds? John Hammond, uh, the dude in white, he, he's created this place. And what joy he has to see how this place is affecting these paleontologists and the scientists. He, he's overjoyed because he sees how good what he has done is and how it has moved them to quake in their boots. Paul tells us this is how God feels if God feels things, 
when he thinks about what he has done in Christ. I'd like to retranslate just a bit of our text to capture some of this prayer, this worship that Paul gives us. I'm not really changing anything, and we'll bring a few things out, but just to get a gist of what it feels like, we read this. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world so that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. He predestined us to be his for himself, to be adopted as children through Jesus Christ. He did this because, like John Hammond in Jurassic Park, it brought him joy. Because he, he wanted the glory of his grace, which, which he freely gave us or poured out, which we saw in one of the songs today, in the beloved. He wants that, the glory of his grace, the glory to be praised by everyone in the world. God exists eternally in the joyous execution of an exceedingly gracious plan. A plan so full of gift and giftedness that all is in Christ. All is from God and the whole world will look and praise him. And the only response for Paul and for the Ephesians and for us is to bless his name. So let's take three election truths from Paul's worship in the book of Ephesians. The first thing is this. God chose the incarnation of Christ and chose the church before creating the universe. That's in your note sheets. God chose the incarnation and the church before creating the universe. Notice the language at the very beginning. He chose us in him, in Christ. God's the kind of God who looked out from eternity and said, I could make any kind of world I want, but the kind of world I really want to make, the one that's the most gracious, the one that's the freest and the most beautiful, is the one in which I come and I'm with my people and I redeem them. The second election truth from Paul's worship in Ephesians is that this plan, this plan of God and its execution are God's joy. He did this because it brought him joy, I translate. That's um, the part in the New King James where you get according to the good pleasure of his will. That sounds weird to us, the good pleasure of his will. That's not something that we, we say a lot. But that, that, that phrase in, in Greek, is, it's almost idiomatic. And it really, it captures that sense where um, you get home from a long day of work and you're like, you know what I really want to do? I definitely don't want to listen to my kids screaming. So what I really want to do is I want to go into the kitchen and I just want to cook. And then you do it. That satisfaction you have while you're making food, that is the good pleasure of your will. It's the joy that comes when you think about your design and your plan and your will, and then you just do it. And so I've translated, he did this, God did this, because it brought him joy. And so the plan of God and its execution are his joy. The third truth, the third truth from Paul's worship in Ephesians, in your note sheets, our purpose-driven life, apologies to Rick Warren, is to draw others to praise the graciousness of God. 
Our purpose-driven life is to draw others to praise the graciousness of God. I translated the last part of verse 6. And because God wanted the glory of his grace, which he freely gave us in the beloved, to be praised. I didn't really change the words. I just changed their order to get a sense of what God is doing, what, what it is that brings him joy. It's to have the glory of his grace, which he poured out on us, that be praised. We are, you might even think, uh, I, I've seen this happen before. Um, when Aaron and I got engaged, uh, I was not able to provide her with the diamond that she truly deserves. You, you've seen this diamond. Um, it's, uh, it's usually on somebody's hand who lives in Newport Beach. Um, and you, you walk up and you're just, you can't look at, at the lady because your eyes are drawn to this sparkling just ball of glory. And like you kind of walk up and you're trying to talk to her, but then you're sort of blinded. And, and you're like, ah, oh, huh. I, it's, what's so interesting is when that happens to you, when you experience that, you, you know what you always think? You're like, dude, what does her fiancé do? <laughs> right? Because you're looking, you're looking at this jewel and you're like, that's amazing. I know that that costs more than I'll ever make. What does he, is he the president? Did he invent something awesome? You know, pet rock, uh, pogs. Um, what, what did he do? To, the logic is identical, friends. You and I, we're that ring. We're that ring on Jesus' hands. Jesus walks around, people look at that ring, and they're like, what is your God like? Because that's amazing. We say, oh, our God, I'll tell you what he's like. He comes down, he dies for you. He's pretty amazing. And so, friends, when you're wondering what your purpose-driven life is, it's to be that diamond so that people look up and wonder, what kind of God do you have? So, doctrine of election, which is it, right? There's three of them. There's three that we talked about. Uh, There's double predestination, there's single predestination, and there's Arminianism. Which is it? I think it's worth uh, reflecting a little bit here. Um, I'll tell briefly. Uh, when I was in college, I had a question about sovereignty and free will. Um, God's sovereign, and yet I still believe that I can make choices. And so one of our campus ministers, he was a super reformed guy, which I didn't know at the time, but now I know looking back. Um, and he told a story. He said, Tom, uh, when I was eight, my dad taught me to drive. And so uh, he put me in his lap, and he gave me the wheel, and he actually constructed these like poles that had books tied at the end that he would tie to his feet so he could reach the pedals. Right? And he would say, all right, let's do some donuts in the parking lot. Really dangerous, right? Well, no, Tom, no, it wasn't. Because he was there the whole time to take the reins if something went wrong. You, we were kind of like that eight-year-old kid, he said. We feel like we're driving, and we are. In some ways, we're making choices, and they're doing things. But, but if things go a little crazy, God's right there to kind of... It's a cool story. I don't buy it. But I think the impulse is right. You see, when we're trying to get our heads around God's sovereignty and our free will, the only way we can do it is to tell a story, to make an analogy. And so I thank Matty B for teaching me about his story of learning to drive. There's philosophical considerations. When we're trying to figure out double predestination, single predestination, Arminianism, notice what we're really trying to do. We're trying to to set two things that we know can't go together. 
God's in control of everything and chooses everything, and I'm free and I can do stuff that I want. Those are incompatible. If you really chase the logic down, you recognize that you can't have both. You can't have your cake and eat it too. It's one or the other. Right? You know, it's interesting. We say that God, this is, I found this out because I'm reading the Quran. Um, I'm fascinated by the Quran right now. I just need to, I kind of wanted to get a sense of where it is that um, our Muslim friends are sort of, what's their, what does their Bible look like, as it were? Kind of wanted to see what it's like. One of the interesting things about the Quran is it calls us, you and me, it calls us polytheists, right? We have multiple gods, according to our friends, our Muslim friends. We've got three of them. We've got the Father and the Son and the Spirit. There's three gods, right? Wait a minute. That's not right. We, we believe in one God, in, in three persons, right? And, and, and the Father is the one who, who directs the plan. Um, he executes it through his Son in the power of his Spirit. We can talk, but, but it's really just one God. We only worship one God. It's the same God of Israel, Yahweh, but we know him in three persons. Guess what, friends? The rest of the world thinks that's a logical con- contradiction. They say one does not equal three. And if you think it does, you failed basic logic. So I wonder, I wonder, if we can have this language where we can talk about the Trinity, we can talk about Father, Son, and Spirit, they have roles, they have persons, they do different things, and yet we can hold them together as one God in the way that we speak and pray and worship, then maybe we can do the same thing with sovereignty. Maybe we can do the same thing with free will. Maybe we can just... Yeah, there's free will. Yep, God does it all. And I'm okay with that. It's a subtle thing, though, friends. It's, it's a rule of language. It's how we speak. We speak when we're talking about the Trinity and we're talking about the persons. We speak in threes. And then when we talk about the unified God, we speak in ones. And we hold the two in tension. And I think we do the same thing when we're talking about God's election of his church. I'm reminded of the counsel of Martin Luther. Martin Luther, who I said before, sometimes is double predestination, sometimes believes in free will. I never know that guy. Uh, at the end, near the end of his life, um, it was recorded a number of things that he said to uh, uh, young pastors and students. And he said, whatever you think about sovereignty, don't tell anyone. Like, keep it to yourself. Because if you start telling people that you, uh, you know, believe that they're damned to hell from eternity, uh, they're probably not going to be interested in that Jesus guy. So wait until people are mature. And then if they must be double predestinationists, okay. Why? Because they'll see Christ first and they'll know his grace first, just as Paul preached, prayed in Ephesians 1. The last thing, friends, is this. We need to remember why we do theology in the first place. And I suggest to you that it is not to get the answers right. That's important. And I'm not saying we don't pursue truth, we do. And like I said earlier, we go where the truth takes us. We follow the scriptures, we follow Christ to the truth. But even St. Thomas Aquinas, who was the nerdiest theologian who ever lived, said this, the end of theology is worship. Thomas Aquinas counted the number of angels that could fit on the head of a pin. And when he was done, he worshipped the holy God who made that possible. Brothers and sisters, 
if you're like me and you live in between single predestination and Arminianism, good. Let that glory draw you to worship. If you're convinced that it's double, let that draw you into awe and worship. Because if you stop having theology take you to the place of worship, you're missing it entirely. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how Paul starts it. That's how we start it. Let's pray. Father, may we be the people who are blown away again and again by what you've done and how you've done it. That you chose to be with us from the beginning. That you chose a church from the beginning. That you decided to break down the walls between Jew and Gentile in yourself, in your own flesh. That you decided to destroy sin in your own flesh. And that you have chosen us to be a part of drawing others to worship you. May we be awed before you and your plan. May we be the diamond ring that draws all the world to worship you. And may we thank you again and again for your gracious free gift in which we do it. We bless you, electing God, Father, Son, and Spirit, three in one. In the Son's name we pray. Amen.